You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Five, four, three, two, and one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. And we are joined today by one of the coaches of a very, very requested movement and training system called Flowbility. We have Karan Hawkins, who is joining us today uh, live from San Diego. And we're really, really excited to get into this because, again, this is, this is a system that I know very little about. Will did a little bit of personal investigation before we hopped on here. But what I'd like to do is I'd love to jump right into it. Um, before we dive into the technical stuff, how about you tell the audience uh, who you are, what you do, and why you're passionate about what you do? For sure. Well, I want to thank you both for having me on the show it's always an honor when someone wants to hear what I got to say. So I, I appreciate y'all taking the time to have me on. Um, so my name is Karan Hawkins. As Anthony said, I'm from New York City, born and raised in Queens. Um, fast forward a bunch. Um, I wasn't very athletic growing up. I was actually very overweight. I was very short. Um, I didn't make any of the sports teams. I, did, I wasn't fast. I wasn't, you know, agile. I wasn't mobile. Um, I did uh, actually musical theater for a while. I got into dance when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Been dancing ever since. Um, and then fast forward to college, I started to slim down a little bit, started to move a bit more. Dance kind of slimmed me down too in high school. I got into weightlifting. I went to Carnegie Mellon University for uh, a bachelor's of science in information systems and business. And um, through weightlifting, I started to understand, okay, like I can actually like get big and like, you know, look strong and feel strong. Um, and I also experimented a lot with insanity and all of the beach body workout programs. Yeah. I actually was a beach body coach. That was sort of my introduction to the, you know, fitness industry, if you will, at around 18. Um, and the first like bit of coaching that I did, if you want to call it that, we created a fitness club in college. It was called the CMU Fitness Club. And I would carry a 40 inch TV with my friend around campus and we would do T25 <laughs> in random areas. It's one of uh, Shanti's programs. And we just invited <laughs> people to just train with us for free. And I would run around the room like a crazy person saying, all right, get your knees up high, come on. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, yelling at people and just trying to get them to sweat. And it was a good time, man. It taught me a lot about how to motivate people and how to guide people in a dynamic sense. Cause I was also looking at the TV, watching the queuing while I was watching someone queuing them. And it taught me to be very active mentally and physically in a coaching setting. So even, you know, with that um, aspect of fitness, where it was more so about heart rate and, and intensity, there wasn't much technical aspects to it, but it still gave me a great foundation for understanding how to interact with another human being in a fitness slash physical activity setting. So it was still very relevant for my experience. Um, fast forward a bunch, I graduated Carnegie Mellon and I went to work in corporate America for a year back in New York city. I was a cybersecurity analyst at Time Warner Inc before it was acquired by AT&T and became uh, Warner media and working in cybersecurity was very, very promising in terms of like financials. And I could have had an amazing career. I was, you know, stationed next to a lot of high executives in the company but I wasn't very fulfilled in what I was doing. 
I felt like I was rotting away at a desk. No offense to anyone that is in corporate America and likes it. That's just, just my opinion. But um, I'm a, I became a mover. I wasn't always a mover um, when I was young, kind of going backwards and I'm kind of going all over the place. But as a kid, I've been playing video games since I could walk. So that was my, that's what I did. I never really went outside. I was either reading books, studying, or I was playing video games. I found movement a lot later in my life through dance. But anyway, um, as I was in corporate America, I needed to move more. I needed to live and like use my body. So I wanted to actually get into the fitness industry as a professional, like become a practitioner in some facet. I didn't know how to do it. My dream was to become the next Sean T. I didn't know how to get there, but I said, I'm going to just try to figure it out. So I said, I really want to do sports medicine. All right, cool. I was in uh, undergrad in Pitt. So I applied to the sports medicine program at the University of Pittsburgh. I was really excited. I had this plan. I was going to like, I was going to do this. I was going to get that. And I got my results back in a week. I was really excited. I was on the train heading to work for my two hour commit. That's, that's one way, by the way. And I was really excited to open this letter and it was denied. I got denied in a week. And when I read it, it didn't really give me a lot of information. It said, you know, thank you for applying, but unfortunately we can't accept admission for you know your application or whatever so i called the dean of admissions for the sports medicine program at pitt i was like uh you know i i really want to get in this program what do i have to do what prerequisites do i got to take classes and she was very kind but she said you know like hey man like you need to take two years of prerequisites to even apply i didn't have any type of class i, I didn't have the biomechanics i didn't have the chemistry i didn't have the, the, the biology i didn't have the mathematics because you know as you know um, biomechanics can get very technical in a mathematical standpoint. So I needed all those things and I didn't have any of it. Um, and I said, well, what can I do? And she said, well, there's another program called um, the health and physical activity masters. And you can apply to that and, you know, give it your best shot. I said, all right. I applied that day and by the grace of something else, I don't know what happened, man, but I got in, I wrote, I must've wrote a heck of an essay because I still needed a lot of prerequisites, but I was willing to do the work. Um, and when I got in, I was I was ecstatic because that was that was that that was how I could convince my mom to be like, Mom, I'm going to quit my job that's making me financially independent to go try and be a personal trainer. And in her mind, she's like, you're out of your freaking mind. You want to quit <laughs> this job in New York City on the 15th floor of a major building next to the freaking CIO. And you're definitely going to make six figures in two years. And you want to quit to be a personal trainer. And I said, yes. And she, she was very upset. <laughs> we had long <laughs> conversations, but she obviously accepted my choice and supported me, even though she was pissed. Um, <laughs> and I quit my job um, that summer. I was there for about a year and I quit my job and went back to school. Fast forward through all that, I, I found things like FRC, I found Supple Leopard, I found all of these other movement modalities. And I started working in person for free for a couple months, training people. And then I eventually got them results. So they started to pay me. And then I said, all right, I should probably get certified. So I got NASM certified. And then I found online coaching through my homie, Cody Boom Boom McBroom. And I started working with him and he mentored me and then blah, 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 blah. Um, and I became an online coach. How I found, found Flowbility was actually through a random Instagram post on my export page. It wasn't some crazy divine intervention. It was just like, hey, this looks weird, but cool. I'm interested. So I actually clicked on it. I liked it. And I DM Jordan right after I liked it. And I was like, hey, man, I think you're really interesting. I really I want to learn about your story because I, I have a podcast myself. 
And I said to him, hey, man, I really want to learn about this stuff. Like, I want to learn your story. How'd you find this? Kind of how y'all kind of approached me after the connection um, with the homie out here. And he said, nah, I'm, I, I don't do podcasts. I'm good. He said, no. And I said, all right. Um, well, I waited like a day or two. I said, hey, man, you know, I really, really want to get to talk to talk about this. I'm really interested. He said, no, again. After three or four times of basically pestering Jordan, he said, all right, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. Because um, what's funny is that he thought, because um, my, my name um, is Coach Chronic. So he was like, this guy wants to bring me on a freaking podcast. Talk, talk about weed, man. I want to do that. <laughs> so he thought I wanted to talk about like weed and fitness. Um, and it wasn't that at all. It's just my name. But long story short, I interviewed him. He, he took everything that I knew about fitness and flipped it on its head. And I hired him on the spot. And I haven't stopped learning since. So that experience of getting uh, the info that you had in your head flipped, um, what exactly was that? Is, is there a piece of information, uh, you know, a first principle that made you kind of say that is that is it? This is the right system. Um, to be honest, man, it was like. It was more so about what he could do. Cause like he would tell me something and be like, all right, bro, this is, this is that, this is that, you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm doing that. And he would literally show me and I'd be like, whoa, okay. That, that, that looks right. The way he would move matched what he was explaining to the, to the nth degree. Like there was no lack, there was no like doubt in my mind in terms of what I was seeing based upon what he was explaining. Um, that was the first thing. And the second thing was that I worked on my shoulder mobility every day for a year and I might've improved it maybe five or 10 degrees. And he, it, it looked like, like his shoulder was so fluid. It was like a chicken wing. Like it was just, there, there was, there was no type of restriction kind of like how mine is now, but there was no type of restriction in his shoulder. And I was sitting there grinding away, trying to get just like two degrees. And if I go, went any further, it would, it would like, I couldn't go anymore. It was like my capacity, if you will. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, he didn't do anything that I was doing and his was way better. His hip mobility was way better. His spinal mobility was way better. And I was like, he's not doing anything with what I'm doing. I should go check this out. And you know, lo and behold, I never stopped. <laughs> I never stopped checking it out. So that's pretty much it. So, that, so, so you mentioned shoulder mobility, hip mobility, and the actual visual impact of seeing the results that this guy had got with his own system. Um, for those who are listening, who has like, I actually still don't really know what flowability is as a system. And what I always like to start when I think about uh, or investigating a new system is what is the problem that they're trying to solve? And so from, from a perspective of a flowability coach, what problems do you see people having that you are trying to solve with, with your system? Yeah, uh, great question. So it, it is a large plethora of problems. You know, I, I get a lot of different kinds of people that come to me. I get athletes, I get, you know, gem pop, I get uh, coaches, I get all types of people. And the range of problems are quite wide. It could be anything from back pain to immobility to lack of stability, balance issues, performance, uh, you know, weight loss. I've gotten, I've really gotten it all. And I, before I did flowability, I was a fat loss coach. I had a lot of, I have a lot of uh, background in nutrition. So we do tend to mix the two uh, from time to time, but yeah, it's a large, large array of, of different issues that I'm helping people with. So are you working with people one-on-one -on -one or is there an assessment process? Like, like how does a 
a person come into Flowbility and and walk me through what a you know a first session or you know a bunch of sessions would look like? Yeah, for sure. So I mean, we have multiple ways that people come in. Um, the main way is through our app. Um, they sign up for the app and they, they kind of work through. Sometimes they want to do PT right away. Sometimes they want to do personal training after kind of diving into it on their own for a little bit. Um, but the assessment process is very basic. I just ask, okay, I want to see you air squat. I want to see you bend over and touch your toes. I want to see you stand on one leg from behind. Now I'll keep standing on that leg and then look and then look at me. And I'm looking at how they're doing all these motions. And I'm basically just visually understanding what are the primary movers of that motion. When they bend over, what do they use the most? When they stand up, what do they use the most? When they twist, what do they use the most? And then based upon that, I have a you know a plan that I create. Um, I don't I don't I don't ever like say what I see to the, like to the, the high detail because a lot of the times the, the client will have like okay what about this what about that my shoulder my head my head they'll have all these things that they're experiencing you know very viscerally but in reality we need to focus on one thing at a time because we can't work on everything simultaneously and what I've come to understand and learn in my own body based on how I've been um, progressing my clients have been progressing and obviously Jordan and the person who taught him have progressed is it all comes down to stability at the end of the day in terms of how the body is becoming more free in terms of the mobility so we work from a stability standpoint to create mobility that doesn't mean that you know we don't work on mobility as well but the central stability of the ribcage and pelvis is the foundation of all the mobility we're going to create because as long as that area is not moving, just just specifically the middle of the lumbar spine, not the whole not the whole spine. I'm not saying the spine can't move at all. It's impossible to do that. I'm moving my spine right now as I talk to you, but the middle of the lumbar spine we're saying needs to be still because that will dictate the alignment of the ribs and pelvis, which is going to then dictate core stability. If the core is stable, when I move my arm, I'm at I'm actually using the muscle fibers primarily around the supportive musculature in my shoulder and you know all those things to actually load and move it. Same thing with my hip, same thing with my, my glutes and all these things. So we're just kind of basing what we're doing off of that stability mobility continuum where there's certain joints in the body that are supposed to be stable, certain joints that are supposed to be mobile. And many of the people that come to me and even and, and myself too, myself too, when I first started, the, that middle of the lumbar spine is very mobile and there's a lack of stability in that natural extension curve of the lumbar spine that we're just trying to restore. And that restoration isn't by arching the back or creating it like directly. It's actually a trick. It's a, it's a trick to the nervous system to just to bring the ribs and pelvis together, which then is secured by the breath. Um, so it is a manipulation of positioning of the bones. And that manipulation is then kind of like turnkey secured by an exhale. And then the person is just learning how to move from the hips, from the shoulders without relying on, on that middle of the lumbar spine moving to achieve these motions. And that's how the adaptation slowly occurs. They don't, sorry, I'll, I'll stop. I see you look, see, look, they have a question, Anthony. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to see if I can it reflect some of it back to see if I'm understanding it correctly. And, and I kind of like to summarize the ideas that I'm hearing to, to sure. people just in, in a different way. It sounds like one of the primary goals is to stabilize that the middle of the lumbar spine. And what you're doing in a training session is you're actually learning to articulate different parts of the spine, different parts of maybe uh, 
jo different joints independently of that that lumbar spine. And so you're doing some of these breathing exercises and you're learning to articulate and lengthen and, and maybe even twist different parts of the spine while keeping that part of the lumbar stable. Is that right? That's, that's, um, that, that, that's, that's right. There's just a couple of things that I want to talk about with that. So we're actually in the beginning. Again, this was myself included. So I'm not saying like, this is not something that I used to do and I'm still even working on. I'm not done. Like the only people that I would consider restored are Jordan and the person who taught him in terms of like, they can't break. Like their core stability does not break. It's impossible. You could try to rip him apart and he won't. And the force it would take to rip Jordan apart from like a stability standpoint, he'd be able to produce like right back at you. So it's like, it takes a lot of force to break that stability. Now, um, what I mean is, but by saying that is that we tend to move. And when I say we, I mean, um, most of the people that I work with and I see on the app, we tend to initiate a lot of our bending over, our standing up from that middle of the lumbar spine. So we're mm -hmm. actually learning how just to bend over without using the spine at all. Not saying that that's going to be forever and not that that's bad or anything like that, but in order to create primary movement from the hip, we have to move from the hip first. We have to learn how to stand up from the hip, how to use the hip to actually go from flexion to extension or basically bending over and standing up. That's it. That, 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 is, that, that is the basic fundamental idea behind what we're doing. We're just trying to remove dependency, as you mentioned, Anthony, and this is the part that I, that I like that you caught, of that middle of the lumbar spine. We're just trying to remove dependency of that. After that area no longer breaks and no longer is wobbly, you can do whatever the heck you want. That's the whole idea. You're rewarded with mobility once that area isn't your mobility spot anymore. You're just changing and flipping the dichotomy on its head. But when you start, your lumbar spine, for again, many of the people that I've seen and worked with, the lumbar spine is hypermobile at that middle and the upper back and the hip are frozen. So the upper back is stable. The hip is stable while the lumbar spine at the middle is very mobile. We're flipping that to where the upper back and the hip become very mobile and the middle of the lumbar spine becomes very stable. Now with things like a post tilt, for instance, where like a posterior tilt, that is going to move the ends of the lumbar spine, but that's still managed by the core, the adductors, the glutes, basically your groin, your, your hip, and it's not managed by the lumbar erectors, meaning the lumbar erectors aren't moving primarily to initiate that posterior tilt. And it's actually coming from your core, your TVA, your groin, and your glutes, and obviously your, your upper back. And that's like the, the rounding and all that stuff that you see us doing. Um, it's basically just pulling away from the middle of the lumbar spine. And that creates like a, a suction cup, if you will. That's a, that's a, it just pulls things apart. And that makes the middle go like that. That's why the waists are getting smaller when we uh, pull away from that middle. So how did you initially come up with the idea that the middle of the lumbar spine or the top of the lumbar spine, I'm assuming you mean L1, like, how did you come to that conclusion that that's the area that's unstable? And I kind of like, sorry, with the, um, uh, definition that you said of stability earlier, is this core stability, meaning that the hips and, uh, lumbar or sorry the hips and the thoracic spine are doing the motions the lumbar spine is holding still and it's a transfer of energy through that area is that the case yeah so i mean um first i want to just make this clear i didn't come up with any of this <laughs> this is not I, I didn't create this i didn't like I'm, I'm a humble student and i'm still learning 
I'm just, I'm kind of like a, a sharer of the info. Like um, Jordan learned it from a guy named Eric who created everything. Um, the guy's a genius. I, I yeah. Anyway, so Jordan was taught by him, and Jordan is teaching me. So just want to make that clear. I didn't make any of this. Yes. Um, now, yes, that definition of stability is accurate. And that's based upon the rib cage and the pelvis being aligned and then basically staying aligned as we go into any motion in any plane. So that it could be sagittal, uh, you know, lateral, so frontal, transverse, doesn't matter. Any type of motion, we don't want to see displacement of the rib cage and pelvis where one of those areas are moving independently from each other. Because if that's happening, the only way that could happen is the disruption of that stability right at that middle point of the lumbar spine, basically right in between the rib cage and pelvis. So, you know, basically where a lot of the issues happen between um, L3, L4, maybe a little bit higher, L2, um, just kind of depends on person to person. But that area, that middle part specifically is very wobbly for most people when they uh, start with us. So would you find that on, on the assessment? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean... From and there, there's certain ways that like, just by the way that someone sits, I can tell by the way they stand, I can tell by the way that they, they, they run and the way that they, they lay down. I can tell when most people, I also, sometimes I'll have an, I'll have an assessment where I just have them lay down and I'll just see what their body does. If their lower back is smashing into the floor immediately, I know that their ribcage and pelvis are not best friends because that means that their, their lumbar spine is basically man their posterior tilt with like it's flattening into the floor and if they're if they have that natural extension curve when they lay on the floor we're going to see it and that doesn't mean that if you you don't have that curve that you you arch it because i talk about um the only only like i don't like to like say hey you better do this like i i don't i don't really care to like prove things the only thing that i say definitively from like a hey you should not do this because it's very destructive is smashing of the lumbar spine into the floor. That's the only thing that I say, don't smash your lower back into the floor. That is the only thing that I would say that we shouldn't do in terms of uh, core stability, because that's that's quite the opposite of stability. That is mobilizing the lumbar spine, and then it becomes st stabilized at like a lengthened state, where it's used to being really long or really short in hyperflexion or extension, and it knows no neutral. And that's the that is the only thing that I will ever say is like, hey, probably shouldn't do this. So, so Will, from from a, a mechanics perspective, because you you actually understand the the bony me mechanisms of the spine quite a bit more. Yeah. Um, is there is there a certain range that the the lumbar spine is optimized to move in, and with and then I'd like to know if that if that the bony structures are optimized for that within the uh, the model of of core stability. Is there an acceptable range of movement in in flowability for the lumbar spine to actually move? Um, so, are you asking me that question? Well, let's, yeah, 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 I'd like to know, like, for, for like, so, so, Will, I guess it's like a two part yeah. question. What, what, like, how, how is the bony structure of the lumbar spine meant to move? From your understanding as a chiropractor, yeah. Well, I was I was taught the same way as as Quran there that the lumbar spine does not move or it shouldn't move and it should be the energy transfer point. Now, yeah. do I still believe that? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I, there may be a, in my mind, anyway, in my opinion, a transfer of energy that happens with certain stabilities. Some people might be unstable there and need more stability. 
And some people are locked up in that area. In fact, most people are, right? But in terms of what I've learned now with Spinal Engine, I don't know if you know anything about it, but um, with Spinal Engine, basically the fascia pulls at that area and the joints rotate, okay? And when the hip goes over, the joints are moving like that and rotating. Freyette's Law, um, you know, it's, it's Spinal Engine versus Brace the Core, basically, in that model, right? Most people are on the Brace the Core model, it's hard for me to say because I'm on the spinal engine model and it hasn't been really tested all that much. Right. So, um, in my mind, it does move a little bit, but not a ton more. Most of the movements can be done in the thoracic spine. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be inclined to agree for the most part. I mean, we're not saying that the lumbar spine can't move at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. That's a big mm -hmm. misconception, um, with, mm -hmm. with people. see what we do like the lumbar spine is too small. like no we're not saying the whole thing can't move uh wait okay we're back um it froze for a second i'm not saying that the whole thing can't move at all i'm just saying just that middle part where that extension curve is meant to be that needs to be still but this can move the bottom can move it has to it has to it is simply that that middle part can't move because that is what disrupts the alignment of the ribcage and pelvis and that's what ultimately shuts down that mobility continuum in terms of the upper back and the hip being dominant from a mobility perspective. You cannot be mobile in the T-spine and in the lumbar spine at that middle spot at the same time. It's, it's like, it's one or the other. Cause like either it's like this where the middle is here or the ends are moving and the middle is kind of following. So it's either the middle, like a bamboo stick, like the middle is kind of leading and, 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 and sort of navigating for the upper and lower or the upper and lower are sort of navigating and the middle is kind of following. So it, it's, that's, that's a really good analogy. That bamboo, that, that kind of, that, that's a good visual. Thanks. I got it from Jordan. <laughs> so who's Jordan and who's Eric? Like, uh, um, I know you keep mentioning them, but yeah, Jordan is my, my mentor, my coach. Um, he's the guy who I interviewed on my podcast and got me into all of this. Um, Eric is his coach and his mentor. Um, and he's the person who created all of this. Um, Eric has been in the industry for over 20 years, and he basically compiled everything that he learned to re-engineer child development for adults. That's the easiest way to um, sort of describe what he did. He's an artist, so he essentially learned, um, and I'm, I'm trying to be careful because I don't know exactly his process, and I don't want to put words into his mouth or anything like that, but let's just say he re-engineered child development for adults. And that's how um, we came to know about what we know about from him, all from him. So from, from a perspective of lifestyle factors and, and how people end up coming to these, like basically why we would actually need to revisit child development as adults, what factors of lifestyle or training or, or like modern life are contributing to this lack of stability in the lumbar spine in your Great view? question. I love that question because um, that gets to sort of the, the root of the, the issues because um, it ultimately does stem from child development. Um, and ultimately, if babies are left to their devices, obviously they're cared for, they're fed, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're in a safe environment where some of those basic necessities aren't, you know, a problem because you put a baby in the wild, it's going to die, obviously. But I'm saying if it's well cared for, cared for, it'll figure out how to move on its own. Um, you know, I, I, obviously, as you both probably know, when we're babies, we're the most like plastic up here and we learn 
very quickly. So you can imagine that as a baby, it takes us about a year or so, give or take. There are certain babies that take a little bit longer to properly move and then learn how to stand up and walk, right? So locomotion from a standing bipedal standpoint takes about a year for most babies. Now, that's when we're super plastic, right? So you can imagine that if there was some disruption in development, and I'll get to what that disruption is, you know, theoretically in a, in a second, but you could imagine that if that plasticity isn't taken advantage of from a biomechanical perspective, there needs to be a re-education based upon some of these issues that have been developed kind of over that. You could think of them as, I hate using this word, but like compensations, where basically certain muscles take on the slack that certain muscles can't do because they, they didn't develop properly. Um, and that obviously leads into a plethora of issues where a lot of muscles are dominant and some can't really work that well. Not that they're off, but you know, they're not primary um, in these motions. Um, and to get into some of those details, it has to do with development of the psoas, development of the abductors. Obviously, we're not born with top butts. We're born with adductors, but we're not born with top butts. The, the uh, glute meats, the, the abductors are developed, um, but they can only be developed properly if the psoas are developed properly. So there's there's some type of uh, uh, disruption in in that phase from the first year. Can't say exactly what, because you know ultimately this is a systematic issue where um, there's a lot of things happening um, that could disrupt the child development, and it sort of gets out of my my bounds as a practitioner because I'm never telling someone how to raise their kid. So I'm just speaking specifically from a biomechanical perspective. Something like disrupted how the baby was developed um, from a biomechanical perspective because if you, you look this up you understand there are literal postural muscles that the baby develops just to just to do that and then to do that and then to do that and then to then to get up and then to crawl and to lay on the side and then supine and then you know all these different positions are fundamental and the baby learns how to do it because of curiosity because of mimicking its parents because of whatever it may be and you know the baby learns how to do these things and it problem solves. It literally starts off as just random perm permutations. Is the right word? I don't know. Random attempts to do something, to reach something. Like maybe like it sees this phone. It's like, oh, I want that. But it's like, I can't move. How do I do it? So it's just going through all of these random, um, you could think of arrays of, of trying to get to that object until it isn't random. And it becomes more patternistic. And, that, and those patterns lead to systematic movement where bunches of muscles are stabilizing while bunches of muscles are moving. So we're like, hold, 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 move. Hold, 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 move. You know what I mean? So it becomes um, more patternistic and systematic in that standpoint. But again, um, at some point along the road, that patternistic development was disrupted by who knows what. And that's obviously theoretically what led to a lot of the dysfunctions that we see as a human race. And I could go into technology and how we've created an external ease for an internal stress. Um, and that's a whole, that's a whole deep psychological argument. There's a lot of things I could go into with that stuff. If y'all want to go there, but I'll kind of stop and let y'all go with biomechanics. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any um, things that people do on a day-to-day -day basis habits that you try to get your athletes or practitioners to avoid doing like i know 
Um, we've talked to some people who try to get people to sit on the ground a little bit more because of the effects that, you know, leaning back into a chair will have. Um, and they'll avoid, you know, I, I met some guy who was like convinced that tech's neck was, was a thing. And uh, from from the perspective of what you're trying to accomplish with flowability, are there any habits that you get your practitioners to try and avoid or replace with something better? Um, well, that, that's a deep question. Um, I, I'll I'll get into it. But before I do that, I want to say that for the most part, there really are no bad movements. There really isn't anything that's like really bad un unless it's like extreme ranges of motion that the average person has no like purpose doing like contortionism, for instance, like I'm not going to have a regular gem pop person, like try to really do some of that stuff. Cause it's, it's for most people, it's dangerous for others. They can do it. They feel great. Go at it. Do your thing. Um, but for the most part, it's not about the motion itself. It's about what's managing the motion. What muscles are moving the most when you bend over, what muscles are, are holding and, and, and allowing you to sit to run, to jump, to sprint. These are the things that we're trying to tackle. So in, in our training system, in even acute bouts, we stabilize the core and we learn to actually move through the gluteals, through the, the adductors, through basically the posterior leg. We learn how to, you could think, uh, put energy into the posterior leg, which creates, I, I might get attacked for this, but it creates sort of a release, if you will or just, just like a let go in some of the, the, the more dominant muscles, namely the erectors, obviously, the, the, the anterior leg muscles, quads, all those things. They like to dominate these, these motions primarily, um, low back and knees, just because of not only um, how the, the uh, motion is distributed, but also where the person's leaning. And that's the forward versus backward energy conversation that you probably heard about, Will, and some of the other podcasts, which we can get into for sure. But in general, we look to try and change what muscles are primarily moving the human. And then we don't think about it. Meaning in sport, when you're sprinting, I want you to run as fast as you possibly can because you just worked on trying to get your glutes and your core to be best friends and work together. Now I want you to go try and use them to the best of your ability. You just worked on your glutes and core for an hour. Now go play hoops and don't think about it. You just worked in your glutes for core. Sorry, you worked in your glutes and core for an hour. Now go swim and don't think about it. We do not want people thinking about these motions in their sport because sport is, for the most part, a skill that you need to focus on the 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 actual like modality of what you're doing. Try imagining like, you know, running down a football field when someone's trying to tackle you and thinking about. I hope my my hip is internally rotating well. Like you, you're not going to be thinking about that. You're thinking, whoa, get away from me, get away from me, jump over this person, spin. You're not thinking about your biomechanics, and we don't want you to. Right. So you're you're trying to create a neurological bias for how the muscles actually organize, um, and Damn. then and then to That's go it. practice your sport where that neurological bias is now subconsciously like so. So this practice is less about. Uh, pat like pattern specific training this is like trying to organize the body through conscious intention and then you let go and and your body will adopt these 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 coordinations is that the yes. idea behind it okay yes and, and that is that is a time variable how long it takes these patterns that we're training to become some subconscious is person to person but yes we are we are basically you could think stimulating these systematic connections 
between the core, the glutes, the groin, the hamstrings, the upper back, the serratus. We're trying to get these stabilizing and mobilizing muscles to essentially work together well so that when you go do your sport, even in an acute standpoint, there is some subconscious carryover. Ultimately, the, the deterministic factor in that adaptation process is neuroplasticity, which you know research has shown that we actually can change things past 25. And when we sleep, that's when we learn. So you could think like 0.5% each day, 1% each day. And it's mm -hmm. and, and over time, the body, as you said, I love the way you categorize that it reorganizes itself to primarily produce force from these areas, as opposed to other areas that it basically used before you started your practice. And over time, that switch happens. So that that stability in the, you know, stability, we're really just frozenness in the T spine and hips switches to that stability in, the, in that middle of the lumbar spine and mobility in the hips and upper back. Love the so let's get into the meat and potatoes of it. Um, in terms of the, like how you're standing, let's say if you want to go for a sprint, where are your pelvis and, uh, you know, your pelvis and ribs aligned? Are they, you know, are your hips ahead or your ribs ahead? Are they lined up on top of each other? Is there a tilt to the pelvis? Like, where are you with that? Well, that's, that's the idea. We don't want people thinking about things like that. It, it is what it is. And we will analyze based upon what we see. And then based upon what we see, we'll, we will give the person protocol. But when they're sprinting, just sprint, just sprint. The goal with sprinting is for your primary extensors to be your glutes, right? We want the glutes in the sprint to be the primary means of extension. And obviously, we want the upper back to help with that. But the glutes are going to be the powerhouse for that, that sprint. That's why all these sprinters got huge glutes, huge hamstrings. You know, you, you'll never see a sprinter... Well, I guess you could theoretically, but most of them have giant glutes. And that's a big reason why, because they're extending through them. It's, it's insane extension. That's, that's their power. I, that's their speed. I agree with that. Um, in terms of, let's say you were trying to repattern somebody, not necessarily like in an athletic endeavor where they have to go, go, go. But if you're going to repattern someone to, let's say they're overextended, I'm just going to throw out a scenario overextended in the lumbar spine, pelvis, uh, right? And uh, let's say their ribs are um, flexed forward. So you have extension at the lumbar spine, you're flexed forward, and your pelvis is far back, okay? So like backwards. Yep. Um, how would you go about cueing somebody like that? For sure. So, I mean, the easiest place to make change is in a supine position um, because in that position, ideally, and theoretically, well, not even, it's kind of hard to say theoretically, but... Theoretically, the lumbar spine or the lumbar erectors, the whole erector chain system can be relaxed. You know, there, there's no demand from a gravitational standpoint where the erectors would need to erect. They can just chill. But in working in person and online, um, we see that the erectors are hard. They're working. So there's there's some type of uh, a primary dysfunction in terms of what's holding the body just in that position. So what we do, and you can go um and any any of the content that we post in the beginning um what we have them do is we do a diaphragmatic breath which basically obviously contracts the diaphragm makes space for the lungs it stretches the tva out and then what we do is we load that that lengthened tva by picking the feet up and now what that does is that actually pulls the rib cage and pelvis closer together and when they when, when they do that it gives them like a little thump 
and they get, depending on the person, just a little bit of extension in the lumbar spine, but they didn't do that. They didn't create that extension. All they did was inflate their belly and pick their feet up. And you'll see that over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Anyone you lay down and have them do that, as long as they're relaxed and not like trying to smash the lower back, if they're relaxed, they big belly and pick their feet up, they're going forward every time. Now, the, 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 the measurement of that, of that extension curve is going to be person to person. Some people move a lot. Some people don't move much at all. But as they pick the feet up and that tug happens and they exhale, that is the, the turn key. So when we exhale and now we, we basically the diaphragm goes up and the TBA comes in, that creates that core stability, which, again, brings the ribs and pelvis even closer together. And over time, sometimes even in the first session I've experienced, the person will get sensation in the lower core, which tells me that, okay, they're actually, you know, pretty stable. And that, and the, the core stability itself is a capacity. And what I mean by that is there, there is an ability for the ribcage and pelvis to stay together. And then once that ability is breached, where like either the load is too high or the endurance, so the time under that stable position has been surpassed, they'll break meaning the root cage pelvis will break and the lumbar spine is going to move again. And that's when we take a break. But you'll, you'll, from my experience and working with my, my clientele and our community, I do, we do group classes as well as part of our app. So I get to see a ton of people and I get to take a lot of data based on what I see. That's a big part of what we, we do. We use our eyes and that allows us to understand how this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, how do they react when I do that? How do they react when I do that? How do they react when I do that? So I'm looking at every single person that comes across, um, you know, what I'm doing and I'm understanding, okay, when I did this with that person, they did that. What does that mean? Okay. What if I change this? Oh, that gave me a different result. Okay. Interesting. What if I do that? So I'm trying to, to problem solve without letting the client know that, like, Hey, um, uh, that, that was interesting. I, let, let me think about that. Sometimes, sometimes I will say, Hey, hold on, let me think about that. But usually I'm, um, kind of guiding them through and like just allowing them to just kind of shut off and do what I say. But going back to your question, that big belly inhale pickup, no matter if they're, you know, lordotic, kyphotic, whatever, we see that it, it comes together. Now, in reality, when the ribcage and pelvis are aligned, we are all kyphotic. You look at the spine, the upper back is, is kyphotic. So it, it is simply a, a, um, a measure of the extreme, like the, the extremes for sure. But um, we're all lordotic in the lumbar spine and we're all kyphotic in the upper back from a, you know, if you take any spine and look at it standpoint. Sorry, I know that was like- a No, 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 no that's, that's fine. I'm just uh, I'm taking it all in right now. Um, Anthony, do you have any questions there? Not, not from that. I, I have a ton of other questions. I'm, I'm really yeah. just taking this all in. Um, if, if I'm going too fast, like, let me know. I talk really fast when I get excited. So I'm no, and no, I, it's all good. this is, this is really good. I'm, I'm taking in a lot of the information. That was one of the questions I actually had was in a lot of these postures that you see flability practitioners doing on say Instagram is there is this kyphotic curve of the, the, the thoracic spine. And I, I couldn't help wondering, it's like, yes, I know there is a natural kyphotic curve in the thoracic. Um, is the programming consideration different for someone who has maybe an exaggerated kyphosis in the thoracic spine? Or do you find that addressing the, the issues, the way that you're doing it kind of universally fixes these things? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it does depend 
Um, like there are extreme cases where like if someone is like sway back, if you will, the protocol will be a little bit different, not necessarily like the, the, the principles, those will be the same, but the, the sequencing, like what we introduce to that person first will be a little bit different. Um, when it comes to that kyphosis, we look at that firstly from a frontline perspective. So we're trying to get the 24 pack to work from the SCMs all the way down to the lower core. So there's all this whole line of, of tissue from a, you know, basically like a, a, a t-shirt perspective, meaning like our body is a big t-shirt and we pull at it and, you know, fascia, if you will, um, all that is connected and all that is helping to stabilize that front line so that we can be mobile basically in the upper back. And that, that reach that you see us doing, that's all about the scapula and the serratus. The serratus is in charge of stabilizing the scapula. If the scapula don't know how to protract and they can only retract, then the, the rib cage is, is suffocated, if you will. And breathing into the posterior rib cage is dang near impossible if there's bones in the way. So that, that reach that you see us doing is not about the round per se. It is more so about protraction of the scapula which stimulates the serratus, which then creates space in the upper back to allow us to in the upper back. And if it was in a different environment, I could just show you, but um, I'm obviously a little limited. But is, is there any concern with internal rotation of the shoulders? Because th these are all things, you know, like you said, you did like some of the FRC stuff and some mobility stuff. And I look at the, I come from a similar world, right? Where I did a lot of weighted mobility training, weighted flexibility yeah. training. And, and you know, I got, I, got, yeah. I got some results, right? And uh, one of the things that I've aggressively fought against my whole life is internally rotated shoulders, wing scapula. These are all the same thing, playing video games and being really overweight as a kid and fighting yeah. these really bad postural inputs for a long time. Um, I'll see some of these you know, wide elbow reaches that you guys are doing in this deep rounding. And I'm like, this is literally – it looks like it would be the internally rotated shoulders – that I'm trying to avoid. It, it's funny because the protraction stuff, like I, I just, you know, even just like observed and copied and did some of it. It's like, wow, that does feel really good. And it gives me a lot of room to breathe. But from a perspective of internally versus externally rotated shoulders, is that something that you guys think about? Is there a mechanism yeah. there that's, that's working? Do you work directly on shoulder rotation? What's the approach there? Great question. And I, I know online, it, it's really tough to, to see, some of these things and a lot of what we do gets misinterpreted. I mean, guys, I, I'm not going to be, I'll, I'll be frank with you. It's very weird. What we're doing is very weird. We, we know that we know it's weird, but, but it works. So it's like, all right, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll pull my pants up. I'll, I'll do whatever I got to do to, to feel the way I'm feeling right now, man. If, if I could thinking about how I started in terms of how I feel and what I feel now, I wouldn't change anything. I'll, I would pull my pants up higher. I don't care. <laughs> Cause the way I feel is so invict. Like, bro, I, I don't like my, my internal, I don't care. Like it, it it's, it's different. Like I, bro, I used to freaking, I used to grind to be able to try to do that. Like now it's just like, it's, it's free. You know what I'm saying? It's hard mm. to describe online in, in this, in this, um, this medium, but man, I, I spent hours working on just shoulder mobility. And after I learned how to stabilize my scapula, and link that serratus in, uh, stimulation with my posterior deltoid, now the, the shoulder is almost free. 
Shoulder mobility is more of a reflection of the expansion of the rib cage and stability of the scapula than just thinking, this is what I've learned, than just thinking about the rotation of the humerus inside the glenoid. Like it, it's, it's not just about how much can I rotate this? It's actually how much space do, does the scapula have to glide about the rib cage? And then from that space, we're rewarded where these are just, where these whips that can, if this is strong here, this shoulder can whip. And if you, if you look at Jordan Box, you can see it. You can see that power, that force production that he can really produce because his ribs are so big and because his hips are so strong. So, so the mobility stability equation is exactly what we talk about when it comes to a stability mobility continuum. We create stability, which creates mobility. The reward of what we do, again, as long as this rib, rib cage and pelvis are aligned and they're working, when you go do this, now I'm actually stretching these fibers. If my lumbar spine can move, all these muscles don't really have to. From the perspective of the t-shirt analogy, so if I were to pull my t-shirt, right, this way, obviously this is not the only part of my t-shirt that moved. The whole thing moved, right? But now if this middle part is also moving with it, the arm doesn't have to do anything because the lumbar spine is going to move because the lumbar spine is going to move because the lumbar spine is going to move. Now, if I say the lumbar spine, hey, don't don't move now. Now move your arm. Now this has to move away, which actually strengthens all of these connections. And that is all based upon the core being the central foundation of that installment to the brain. That is that is the central piece of our of our of our our practice. It, this has to be still for these to actually learn how to, you know, you could say reach their full capacity and potential. Right. So, so what I'm hearing is the real lack of mobility that me, people experience is not necessarily from a lack of being able to articulate the joints, but it's because you're outsourcing the, the job of mobility to a part that's supposed to be more stable and move less. And so Bro, if you that's... have excessive movement in this joint, you know, rather than reaching up and, you know, using that serratus interior and, and gliding that shoulder blade, I'm just going to reach with my spine and then I don't have to do it with with that that complex in the shoulder yeah is that exactly. sort of the idea yeah and and if you if you look at how jordan would do that motion it's not that doing that motion is bad right i said that before the motion isn't bad it is what's managing the motion when when i first started and i, I still can't really do this yet when i reached overhead like that my right ql would just crunch and then the, my, my my left ql would get really long and my right ql would get really short and they would just exchange Whereas we want the QLs to be relatively stable. It's not that they can't move at all. We just don't want egregious differences because that, that, that's compressing, right? The, the, the QLs are attached to the bottom ribs, the lumbar spine, and the pelvis. So if one is really long and one is really short, that side of the lumbar spine is being crunched and compressed. And that's obviously changing what muscles are going to be managing that position. Whereas the way that Jordan and Eric reach overhead they're actually moving from their ribs because their ribs are open and, and they're, they're fluid, they're mobile. Look at like someone like Conor McGregor, the way he, he does that dance. That's not his arms. He's, he's, he's bragging about his, his ribs there. So he's like, he's, and when they reach, you could think this area actually moves up. So they lengthen to reach as opposed to crunch to reach. It's, it's just a, a different management system. And um, it's all about just what, what, what's doing the motion? What's really doing 
these motions. It's not like bending overs, I bend, all that stuff, rotation. None of that's bad. What's doing it? It's managing it. it. So yeah. I think that's, you know, Will, we talked a little bit before this episode and we're like, okay, well, this, this, it looks like, because anytime someone brings up mobility and stability, we've talked so much about spinal engine and in that particular model where one side compresses, one side elongates, and there's this almost like elastic reciprocation from side to side, creating more efficiency of movement and you create balance because you have this sort of column where your head is over your foot and you're, and if you look at like high speed sprinters, they're still using that elastic recoil. There's, there's a lot of fascial action. And yeah. we were like, how do you think this system is going to fit in with the spinal engine model at all? Do you think there's going to be any overlap between these systems? And what I'm hearing is it's like, you know, you're, you're basically creating more movement in the ribs. It's not like you're creating like a passive column of the entire spine. You're just saying that the spines wave and the spine's movement is more optimized when it's in the thoracic and when the lumbar is more stable. So there is still there is still pelvic movement, there is still shoulder movement, there is still rib cage movement, but it's more optimized when that movement is more outsourced to the upper half of the spine. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yep. And and the way that um Jordan's ribs move, they've like they've opened, they've expanded, right? So when when we when we inhale inside the ribs as you guys know the intercostal muscles is a bunch of different respiratory muscles that assist breathing besides obviously the diaphragm um and now a lot of the times when people come to us they're used to that like down and back you know posture if you will or that positioning of the scapula and that basically restricts a lot of the back muscles the posterior muscles the lats the rhomboids all of these medial muscles in, in, in the scapula and obviously all the muscles down um, and as we open that and the rib cage expands, it actually increases the girth of the shoulder girdle. It increases the girth and, and the width of the ribs and how they can, they can move because the, the capacity for, um, posterior breathing is the ability for the tissue to accept breath. If the tissue isn't moving, it's not going to be able to accept breath, which means it's going to go somewhere else path of least resistance. So if we can create an environment where the latissimus dorsi, so the lats are more fluid and more movement oriented where they're, they're, they're ready and they're, they can, they can, they can whip, but if they're not whipping, they're, they're chilling. They, they actually can accept air. Now we can actually breathe back there. Same thing with the intercostals, but if they're smashed and, and, and smushed together from that hyper compressive, uh, uh, management system that I mentioned before, none of these tissue can accept air. So all we're doing with that reach is reinvigorating these tissues that have been taught to, to basically be still and, and not really um, accept breath, which, which it's got to go somewhere. So it's going to go interior, basically the front ribs and all that stuff. So I have a question about like, let's say I'm on a run and uh, like you were mentioning the lumbar spine, just to clarify, L1 is what you mean, right? The top of the lumbar spine being stable, or do you mean, uh, what do you mean exactly by that l1 um it's like i would say between l1 and l3 like just like right in that middle portion like right before like most people are very hypermobile at that like tl junction area that's where we kind of see a lot of that mobility so like right below that we're trying to freeze if you will just right where that extension curve is so somewhere between T1 and 3. It's interesting because I must be missing something. Like in the office when I'm working, I see that area just rigid on most people. So is it because the muscles are holding on tense 
because they're mobile at that area? Well, is that the yeah, case? So, I mean, it, it, from from a, a basic standpoint, um, hypertrophy is expressed based upon motion, right? So if a muscle is lengthening a lot and shortening a lot, it's going to grow. If it's receiving load, it's going to grow. And when when I bent over the first time, when a lot of people do our system, they bend over, the waist gets bigger. If if I was bending over using my butt, my butt should get bigger. But when I used to bend over and it, it, it didn't move, it, it didn't grow, my middle would get bigger, which is kind of painting the picture of what is accepting load in these motions. And a lot of the times when people do just kind of lay down, whether it be prone or supine, and you feel their erectors, they're, 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 they're gushy, like they're like, they're, 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 they're hyperflexic in that sense where they're, they're ready to work because they've been taught to work excessively. Um, so to answer your question, it's, you know, it, it, it isn't that like, um, they're not rigid. It's, it's not that these muscles aren't like, um, hyperflexic. It's more so that they're used to accepting load, which has created a lot of growth in the erectors and forced them to be the hip. If, if when I bend over and my lumbar erectors stretch a lot, why do my hamstrings have to move? They don't. My lumbar, my lumbar erectors become functionally and biomechanically my hamstrings. And when I stand up, if my lumbar erectors extend and shorten, I don't really need hip extension. I do. I'm, I am going to hip extend. It's like I'm not using my butt at all. If you, you all know that if we if that were true, we'd all fall on our face. But it is simply lumbar lumbar erectors. One. Gluteals five, five, meaning what's what's working in that sequence. The lumbar erectors are going to be real, real busy. Glutes, not too busy. Hamstrings, not too busy. Lats, not too busy. Some of the biggest muscle groups on our bodies are, are not primary in a lot of these motions that require flexion, extension, rotation, lateral flexion. Adductors obviously are in that equation. The whole lateral subsystem doesn't know how to synchronize with itself. Um, and that obviously gets into gait and that contralateral stability with the, the groin and the glute med and that, and that QL. A lot of these things don't know how to synchronize with each other because they're used to operating on silos based off of that missing fundamental principle of stability if my lumbar spine will do it why do my hips need to if my lumbar spine will, will bend over why do my hamstrings need to why do, why, do, why do my glutes need to grow bigger if my lumbar spine if my lumbar erectors will grow bigger it's simply a replacement it is simply a replacement so in the in the running model let's say uh you don't want to like uh, move that top part of the lumbar spine how does one actually run though? Wouldn't the spine, wouldn't you keep the spine rigid in the middle if that's the case? Do you know what I mean? If, if, if the top of the lumbar spine is stable, I'd have to be just gyroscoping from the uh, lumbar, sorry, thoracic spine. I'd be moving only from there. The lumbar spine is completely stable, ideally. Is that the case? Like, and when I'm watching somebody run, is their spine rigid and stable or is it moving back and forth? That's well, I mean, my real question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the locomotion is going to happen um, primarily, obviously, in the arms, the shoulders, and the legs propelling the motion. The spine is relatively stable, um, except like in that high T-spine, like in a, in a sprinter, for instance. That is going to extend. But the lumbar spine 
um, unless it's like a super hyper extension where the capacity of the hip extension or the thoracic extension or whatever has been breached, that's when we'll start to see that. And we'll, you know, that's going to happen. It's not like, it's not like we can't do it is what I'm saying. It's only the last resort. Once I've exhausted all of these other bouts of extension or flexion, if I've completely exhausted them, then yeah, that will move. But it, we're just giving the body other options. When the body has other options, it doesn't have to default to that lumbar spine extending and, and flexing you know, excessively. It can exhaust all these other options, the glutes, the upper back, the hips, all these things before we essentially dip into the lumbar spine. So it's not that it can't move. It's not like if, if I, if I like, let's say if I did an insane posterior tilt where I'm just like trying to smash my low back as hard as I freaking can. If I do that for a while, maybe I haven't, I haven't really tried that. But the, the, the theory is just that, Hey, we're going to use this first, this second, this third, this fourth. And then at the very last thing, if I'm at my wits end, I got nothing left. Then that lumbar spine will extend or flex right at that moment. So what about like Usain Bolt that moves side to side like this? If we're watching them from the frontal plane, I'm not talking like sagittal plane flexion extension. I'm talking about the movement from side to side. I think I can clarify maybe where the, like where the um, disconnect is here. Um, Will and I kind of look a lot, like I mentioned before, we look a lot at the spinal engine model of locomotion, which is where the spine waves in a reciprocal way where the thoracic counter rotates the shoulders and the lumbar spine is responsible for rotating the pelvis. And so there's, there's a figure eight motion happening at the pelvis and a counter figure eight motion happening at the thoracic. And there's a reciprocal sort of elasticity happening along the midsection, right? So during locomotion, there is, there is a movement that happens in the pelvis, right? And this, the, the lumbar spine is typically associated with the, that rotation of the pelvis. So he's saying, I think what will, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Will, you're asking is if the lumbar spine has to stay stable, is the, is the pelvis supposed to stay stable too? Because the lumbar spine is responsible for this rotation of the pelvis. And I so how does, how does core stability fit in with a locomotive model? This was actually one of the questions that, um, that our audience had as well. Like how does flowability fit in with a locomotion model? Um, because 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 brace the core is actually another alternative locomotive model. It's the stable core stability. So we're just saying. we're just wondering is like is there room for some some lumbar um, movement to rotate the pelvis, or is that not something that you want to to go for in in the flowability system? Is that is that I right, Will? It. Is that kind of what you're what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, that's basically what I was asking. Also, the visuals, like if I was to watch somebody run, what what would I want to see from a um, you know front to back? If I'm watching them come at me from the front, what am I? Do I want to see them more rigid, or do I want to see them moving? Is yeah, like what's the optimal gait? Is that the kind of yeah, pretty much, pretty much your your question as well, right? So yeah, okay, that makes sense now. Um, so. In general, we're basically trying to create a hip dominant system to where when they're running, when they're walking, whatever, their hips are primary. So if the lumbar spine is doing that, we know the QLs are doing that, which means the hips aren't. The QLs can't be doing this and the hips doing this. So that's sort of the last. They're doing this though, like the over. 
Yeah, yeah, but but still, I'm saying the the QLs, whether it's like for sure they're going to be exchanging, but I'm saying we just don't want to see excessive length in the QLs in reflection of the glutes, like the glutes, the the glute medius, the lateral hip, the actual glute max. That's where all of that motion needs to be coming from primarily. Now, of course, the QLs are going to move, but it's it's that same equation that I was talking about with this, just in obviously a different plane. Um, and when you look at a lot of the sprinters, they're not they're not rotating excessively. It's it's fairly uh, straight in terms of their their rotation. Like if you look at the Olympics, they're not like they're fairly like like that because this front line is 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 fairly still. Um, there is some, of course, there's some rotation, but it's not a lot um, because the glutes are propelling it, and um, obviously the T-spine is extending. So. We're not seeing a ton of rotation from that perspective. And it's, and I think I saw on, on, on the stories about rotation, it's not that um, creating a lot of stability limits rotation. It's actually the opposite. Um, and what happens is when the glutes and core learn how to work together, that rotation is, is a full body motion. Where look at something like boxing. You would want to rotate from your hip and your ribs to hit the bag or hit someone. You wouldn't want to rotate from the lumbar spine to hit someone. Now, of course, you could, and there are people who do that, and they're powerful and all that stuff, but I'm just saying from like a, a, a distribution of force perspective. The way Jordan hits the bag now, based on how he hit the bag before, there's no comparison. I've, What's I've that, Jordan? Huh? Sorry, uh, does Jordan have like a, a social media or anything that I can check that out? Yeah, he's Flowbility. He is Flowbility. Oh, I thought you were Flowbility, no? On I, YouTube? I mean, here, here, I, I'll explain. <laughs> He's, I'm a flowability yeah. coach. Yeah. Jordan created flowability, and he is the yeah. embodiment of the principles. Like, he is it. Everything that I'm saying, he has all of that. So just if, if you just go to his page and study his movement, everything that I'm talking about, we're like, when he extends, the ribs don't flare, and his his he gets longer, and his waist gets smaller. Like, all these things, the rotation that I'm speaking of, the dominance in the hips, he has it. So if you go look at him, you will see every single thing that I'm talking about, and it'll be reflected in how he moves. And that goes back to why I started working with him in the first place, because everything he was telling me in terms of how the body works and how we move, he could actually do it. And I could see it like he, he would show me and then he would allow me to feel just like a small percentage of that in a session. And I'd be like, wow, you're saying I, I can look like that one day. I can move like that one day. Yo, sign me up. How long does it take? Don't matter to me. It's possible. Well, I'm very much in feel for sure. Yeah, it's all, it's, it's it. all possible. It's all possible, man. So, yeah. So, sorry about the confusion. I wasn't really sure what you were saying, but you were basically talking about like lumbar rotation in in gait and, and well, like lateral. I, I was talking more about like if the hips move. Okay, so I'm talking about like if I'm looking at the ilium. Okay, and I'm watching it. There's a small amount of motion that happens like this, depending on who you are and what you're doing, right? If I'm if I'm moving the ilium like this, there has to be a rotation at the pelvis or sorry at the uh, vertebrae. Okay, so the more I do that, the more rotation happens, and that also couples with the pull of the thoracolumbar fascia. If I'm rotating to one side, then the the pull of the fascia is going to pull on one side and uh, slack on the other. Okay, so there would be motion in the rotations of the lumbar spine when you're running, even if you're straight. So like, that's, that's the disconnect I have there where it may be just, we're working off different models, right? Like, um, maybe I'm making a mistake because I train this in my body. Like, how would that be 
if I'm going to ask a question here, why is it a mistake for me to train lumbar motion? Um, it's not a mistake to train lumbar motion like at all. It is more so that middle part needs to be stabilized or that's all it, that's where it's going to happen. Um, in my experience, in my experience, that's where it's going to happen. Um, we need to teach the, the gluteals to primarily rotate the body to primarily extend the body. Um, and then they won't, the, the glute max won't need to at some point, it'll be the, the, uh, the glute meads and the adductors that will manage submaximal ranges of motion, like walking and running. When we're sprinting, maximal sprinting, we'll see the glute max um, work a lot. Um, when you go see Jordan run, you, you'll see that idea of like relative stillness and not a lot of like hyper rotation. It's not that his body's not rotating at all. It's just coming from a different place. Um, and it's happening at a different environment. Yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah, and, and yeah, basically what I'm hearing is, is there's, there isn't, there isn't, uh, like complete stillness. It's not like you're completely rigid. It's just that rather than having the rotation come from a little bit further up in that lumbar spine, it's probably closer to your, you're, you're allowing the hips to do the rotation of the hips, not the spine to do the yeah, rotation. It's, of the, it's hips. the hips and the ribs that, that are yeah. primarily rotating the hips and the rib cage. The rib cage is meant to, to rotate, laterally flex, extend all these things. It's meant to be open. But a lot of, I mean, my rib cage is still very tight. I, I mean, it, it's gotten better. It's gotten way better, man. But my rib cage is still very frozen. I have a lot of work to do, bro. And I'm, I don't, I don't care because I feel really good right now. So what's gonna happen when my ribs actually move like Jordan's? Like I wish I could. I wish you guys could like teleport here, and just like see him move, man. Like it's it's nuts. It's super nuts. Like he moves like no one I've ever seen besides um, Eric, who's just. He's like, he's insane. He's insane. Well, and this and, is, and this is really, like, Eric is, is to give you some perspective, Eric is like six, seven. So he has very long extremities. So the fact that his rib cage and pelvis do not break is, is impressive. Cause that's a lot of weight to manage, which means his trunk has to be insanely strong, like an animal. Like you'll never see an animal break their rib cage and pelvis in the wild. Obviously, if they're, um, um, domesticated, there's different things that could impact that. But in the wild, they're, they have very strong trunks and smaller extremities for the most part. Like the, the, the base of the extremity in terms of like here, huge horses, huge butts, huge butts, very small, uh, you know, what am I trying to say? Like lower leg muscles, yeah. huge butts, yeah. <laughs> huge trunk, huge neck. You know what I'm saying? So like these, these are the things that, that we see um, and, and some of the animals and like the animal kingdom is a big thing that I study too. just understanding that extremity versus trunk dominance. Yeah. And, and that's really why I kind of wanted to have you on too, is because when I looked at flowability, it looked like such a static practice, but then everyone who has done it, who I've talked to and, and a lot of the people who are practicing it are saying I'm moving so much better. And I've never seen a static practice translate to better movement. And I wanted to kind of understand why I think I got a, a pretty cool understanding of, of some of the, the, the carryover of how a static practice could actually translate to, to movement, which by the way, is very rare. Like you don't see that in, 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 yeah, dude, it's nuts. I, I, when I first saw it, I was like, where, where's, where's the movement at? Like, that's, that's what I, that's really what I thought when I first saw it. And then I, I literally swiped. And I saw this man running and jumping and hitting the bag. And like, I was like, whoa. And I saw how he used to hit the bag. And after he introduced these principles, I said, whoa, okay. So you're telling me he held a yoga pose for two minutes and then went for a sprint? 
that's like unheard of. And when I say yoga, I obviously mean mobility, but it's, it is basically based upon yoga, um, just different interpretations of it in different applications. Um, everything we're saying is based in the research, it's based in the anatomy, it's based in what, you know, a lot of people talk about. Our application is just fairly different, fairly mm. different. And then last, last question here before we kind of, well, last two questions. What's the deal with the pulled up pants? Yeah, dude. So um, I, I really wish I could just like turn the camera and just show you. Um, but to put it plainly, imagine that you have, you're wearing jeans, right? And you have the jeans like below your belly button. If you bent over, how would your butt get bigger if the pants are in the way? Right below your belly button is like, you could think, the, the iliac crest and the belly button are like, for most people, relatively in the same line of, of uh, you know, circumference or whatever. If you wear your pants below that, meaning that your glute meads are being blocked when you bend over, especially with something like jeans, like it's, it's, it's impossible. The jeans, the, the fabric needs to get out of the way. Mm. When I bend over, my butt should get bigger. But if there's something in the way, my butt can't get bigger. And the brain is going to find the next best thing. Lumbar spine. So it's, it's literally just to get the fabric out of the way so you can hinge properly. Correct. That's awesome. And then the actual <laughs> – Will, did you have any other final questions? We had someone ask. Um, yeah, someone had a, a question on the chat that was pretty interesting. If we could pull up a, a Jordan and maybe get you to break it down and, yeah, and I, see his movement. And I was looking for some, oh. some footage here. Um, and I couldn't find anything right off the get-go, but I can, uh, let me see if I can just pull something up really quick. Um, while I'm doing that, do you want to tell people where they can learn more about Flowbility and where they can learn more about your work and how they can work with you directly and what options they have to work with you directly? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you can find us on um, the Flowbility website, um, www.flowbility.com. Um, that's really old. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm trying to find some some That's newer like stuff super as well. We're old. Yeah, just like literally go to the top of his page. He just posted something. Mm. Um, you you can see that's like 233 weeks. But anyway, um, you can go to our Instagram right here. Um, and oh, he just, he posted it. Hey, there we go. There we go. This is this is so dope, dude. Like, it, a lot of this stuff is just. It is him. Like everything that I'm saying, it's him. He's, that's all his hips, his ribs. You see his shoulders, his spine's not moving. It's like, it's like it's his ribs. And yeah, I, I get, I get really excited. So I start to fumble <laughs> my words, but um, you, yeah, I mean, you can look through um, anything you want. Um, he's, he's got it, man. He's got it. He's restored everything. He's, he's strong and he's, and he's still getting stronger. Um, he's still his, his flexion and extension point is still getting up there. I'm trying to get mine up there in terms of where I primarily bend and extend my spine from. Um, but he's it, bro. He's it. Yeah. Like, Will, I don't know if you're seeing it too, but I am seeing the actual like counter rotation of the hips and pelvis happening with him while he's kind of doing some of this stuff. When he's exaggerating his shoulder movements, you can see it a little bit more. But um, what, what are you seeing right off the get-go? Uh, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, this is a lot how I move. Um, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, uh, I, I just don't know how would one know that they're stable in that. Like, if I'm watching this and, I, and I'm seeing that stability in the lumbar spine, could I identify it with just watching the video? Like, 
let's say you do a session uh, before and after. How am I looking at the lumbar spine and seeing that? Well, I mean, you can't see because obviously he's wearing a big T-shirt and big pants, mm -hmm. but there's other shirtless um, stuff that he has that you would be able to understand it better. I mean, pull up that 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 um that posture picture right there. So he's completely restored his his posture in the sense of where his body rests is in a completely different place. If if you look at his uh his waistline on the left, his extension point is at his sacrum, and he's taken that extension point and put it basically up into his thoracic spine. Um, you can see his shoulder girdles elevated. His his neck is is incorporated with his T spine. I mean, his 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 the back of his head is different. Um, it's it's all it's all different, bro. It's 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 crazy. It's crazy. That's this is a reflection of the he let go of the front line and it just like rose. So his mm. his 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 whole rib cage is is rising. Um, it's all it's all different. It's um yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. What, what, what he's done to his body is is unprecedented. It's unprecedented. But um, is there, I, I gotta go. is there another? Okay, no problem. Yeah, I gotta go. Um, the the last one that we can look at just real quick. Cool. Um, go 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 down real quick. Go back into it. Yeah, yeah. This this is um an easier way to kind of see because he's shirtless in this one. Go to that one right there where he's doing the crunches. In the on the left. That's me. Oh, this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one. So that's this is a the easiest way to understand how he changed where he moves from primarily. You can see the ribs are flaring and like kind of going up and down in the top one, and they're mm. not really moving that much in the bottom one. It's all happening at his upper thoracic spine, and you mm. can see that his lower back is no yeah, going his nowhere. Lower back near is the like floor. off the off the ground completely, and he's just moving yeah. from the thoracic spine. And if you look at the gluteals in the top versus the bottom, his mm. his glute his top butts his glute meads are flat and and unresponsive in the top one. Whereas in the bottom one, they're 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 holding, they're stabilizing, they're doing their job. So it's it's a, it's just a and it's just a tale of two systems, man. It's a tale of two systems, and um, the the, the static movements that you see us doing are are translating to um, dynamic, and it's 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 uh it's really cool. The way he freaking like look at that shoulder extension as he rotates. That's his ribs. That's all, all of that rotation is coming from his rib cage and his hip. Look at how his shoulder and his hip turn over at the same time. And then his, his, that back arm carries into extension. That is, that's everything that we would want because the lumbar spine doesn't have to move if the rib cage and the hip are going to primarily move. It's cool. And you, so, you do see that there's, there's like, there is lateral flexion happening. There's rotation happening. It's just it's yeah. happening as a coordinated effort there. Heck yeah. He has a lateral hip. It's, it's the lateral hip that he's developed. And that's, that's the missing component, especially for, for dudes with our pelvis being so shallow um, in comparison to obviously a woman who has a wider girth pelvis. Um, the lateral hip is, takes a long time to develop um, mm. on a man. And he, he has it. He has it. It's huge. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us today um, to go check uh, Karan's work. Go to uh, K-A-R-O-N-X-F-L-O on Instagram. Uh, you can check out his work. Go to flowability.com. That's the word flow without a W, ability, like ability.com, yeah. and you can go sign up for the programs. Uh, thanks for taking the time to break this down with us, man. This was a really cool episode, really um, uh, kind of outside of the box thinking and totally new ideas for me. I know I've, I've never 
thought about it in this way and, and my brain is going a mile a minute now and there's a lot for us to unpack here. So I'm going to listen back to this. I'm going to uh, apply a couple of ideas. I might even hit you up for a few test sessions just to see what it feels like and actually be able to report from, from someone who's actually done it. Um, but yeah, if you guys listened to this episode, you liked it on iTunes or Spotify, please leave us a rating. Go check out Karan's work on Instagram and on the Flowbility site. And we'll catch you for another episode soon of the Art of Move podcast. Thanks for having me. Have a good one, guys.